Okay, hello and welcome to episode 41 of Dano Says So, brought to you by Trust Records and the Evergreen Podcast Network. Like most of my guests, Spencer Ackerman is somebody I share a history with in punk rock or in hardcore punk. But over the last maybe dozen years, it's his work as an investigative journalist in homes like Wired, The Guardian, The Daily Beast, and numerous others. His participation in a Pulitzer Prize winning team that covered global surveillance in Snowden that make him a fun brain to pick. Today is a conversation he and I have long meant to have about a book he released released last year. That book is called Reign of Terror, How 911 Destabilized America and Produced Trump. Uh, Spencer, it's taken a while to get back, back on the mic with you, but every time I do, I leave feeling one step closer to being a smart kid. So Spencer Ackerman, thank you for doing this. Hey, Dan, thank you so much for having me back. Absolutely. What I wanted to say right off the bat, I waited a long time for the book. It was never over my head. It was very digestible, but it's exhaustive. It's well-researched, and it makes use of tangible examples to uh, illustrate the psychologies of some of the people it's covering. And maybe we'll touch on some of those. Maybe we won't. But I just wanted to commend you on fine work. Because as a friend of yours, I knew the interest would be there. As someone feigning the objective consumer, I was really impressed with it, sir. Well, thanks so much. I mean, to have one of the premier storytellers in hardcore give that assessment is really heartwarming for me. So thanks again, Dan. Right off the bat, there's something from early, early in the book I wanted to ask you about. It touches on the notion of American exceptionalism and holds it up as sort of a flagpole for the impetus in a lot of things. In my mind, I tend to sub in the term American hubris. The phrase where I felt you best exemplified that, in which I would love to hear you expand upon, because at least to my thinking, it's yours, is the phrase America acts. It is not acted upon. Yeah, so it was important to me to structure Reign of Terror in a way that the narrative and the examples I give across 20 years worth of story that I'm telling gets back at like fundamental interests and concepts that not only propel the war on terror, but reveal the war on terror's place historically. Um, within the United States and the United States' self-conception. I probably use the term American exceptionalism a little bit differently than most times that it's used, but I do so purposefully. And the reason why is often when we talk about the term American exceptionalism, the people who use it are often people who advocate it. And what they're doing by introducing the, the term is trying to make an argument for why America is unique, distinct, praiseworthy, a moral exemplar, that sort of thing. I wanted to use it to show how American exceptionalism in practice manifests. And so that's where it dovetails with, with what you're talking about with hubris, because that's how it does manifest. What it means is that, again, in practice, as opposed to how we as Americans might want to think about our history, is that America sets the terms for the world, and those terms don't necessarily apply to America. We talk about, in a lot of contexts, international law, the law of armed conflict, you know, in, in all these national security and foreign policy senses, we talk about an architecture of either international agreement or international rule abiding, for lack of a better term, 
that America sort of presides over and seeks to ensure that sort of everyone is, is playing by those rules. But that's not true at all. And one of the things that, you know, we can really, you know, use to see this very clearly is, you know, without co-signing, you know, the invasion and occupation of Ukraine, hearing over the last or potential um, invasion occupation of Ukraine, we're waiting to see how this crisis plays out. But one of the things that's become very conspicuous over the last, I guess, you know, two, three weeks of international tension between the U.S. and Russia over Ukraine is that so much of what the United States is using to center the problem, the possibility of Russia uh, inventing a pretext in order to take what it wants out of a weaker country, how many times throughout not just American history, but very recent American history, has America acted in precisely such a way? And again, without excusing anything that Vladimir Putin does, it is exceptionally difficult to see America make that argument and not simply respond, what is it about America that thinks it gets to do this and, you know, name the country, El Salvador, Honduras, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Vietnam, all down the list, but other countries don't get to do that. And that loops back to the concept of American exceptionalism. When Americans, particularly American policymakers, talk about this without kind of recognizing this hypocrisy or explaining it away, they do so from a position of absolute sincerity very often. Um, they're not doing this cynically to get something they want. They do this because over the course of my time as a reporter, I've noticed they're not drawing that connection because American exceptionalism also operates on the level of myth to justify the way in which America orders the world or seeks to order the world, not just as a programmatic exercise, but as a kind of morality play about what is good and what is bad that expresses itself not in terms of what behaviors are good and bad, but what countries are good and bad. And that I think we can agree is probably a, a, you know, a, a really dangerous thing uh, to get engaged in. Could I ask you something that you made me think about there? You're talking about how, to, how many times in recent history. Would you agree that it's been part of the American psychology at bare minimum, probably dating back to Korea. I, I mean, I would really say for 400 years. That jives with what I'm thinking. Where I'm going next, um, and which bounces back towards you in the book, a lot of that based upon that was based upon this notion that other in, in sort of less modern wars, things didn't go down on our turf. They didn't go down in this country. Now, 9-11 didn't serve to flip the apple cart, did it? It sort of accelerated that thinking. Or did it become further justification for that thinking? I think it's best conceived of as, as doing both things, you know, from a kind of abstract level for a moment. And I don't want to get too mawkish on this, but like as a native New Yorker, it's not abstract for me. Like okay. I remember thinking on 9-11, you know, quite possibly every, you know, because you don't know what's going on. I was 21 at the time also, you know, quite possibly everyone I cared about was about to die a violent death and there would be nothing I could do about it. Like I remember that fear and that anxiety very well, especially, you know, the, the weeks and months that followed in which that seemed to um, accelerate instead of um, diminishing. Uh, this was not, of course, as, you know, I think everyone um, who was around then remembers a time when people thought clearly. It was an exceptionally emotional time. Part of that extended from this idea that, something 
that felt like not just normalcy, but the proper order of the world was interrupted by the fact that there was a successful foreign engineered attack on American soil, something that hadn't happened in decades, something that um, shocked and horrified the conscience of America, but not in a way that alleviated the root causes of why that attack occurred, but instead intensified those conditions where America decided that it, I shouldn't say America decided, but people who ran the country who were, I think it's fair to say, not elected by the American public, certainly Mm -hmm. not by a majority of the American public and installed by five Supreme Court justices, decided that they would use 9-11 to play act on the world stage, first a sense of what was in a sense legitimate in terms of the people who died on 9-11, legitimate victimization, but then use that pretextually to put into practice uh, a lot of the most hysterical, paranoid, and bloodthirsty conceptions of American power and what it ought to do on the world stage. So it's not I think one or the other, because again, part of the engine for the shock of 9-11 was the aberration that it seemed to pose. And so further action in the war on terror, further violent American action, domination throughout the 20 years that followed have been premised on the idea that never again can a foreign attack manifest on American soil, which also serves the purpose of obscuring just how much violence, how much political violence uh, has been part of America from the start and contributed uh, to the um, tearing of the American social fabric across the 20 years that I, I study in the book, as if that wasn't terrorism also, as if that wasn't political violence also, and ought to be placed in a kind of different category, not just politically and not just legally, but socially. Well, to, to, to sort of jump in there, you know, you as someone who wrote it and me as someone who read, read it recently, I mean, you make without, you know, spelling out in 10 sentences, but rather by putting an amazing amount of flesh on it, you point out that McVeigh, that the CSA, that, that Ruby Ridge, that conflicts like this did not result in things like the Patriot Act, that did not result in a huge expansion of law enforcement or even military outreach. But at least the way I took it was, but from a foreign soil or from a non-white aggressor, all bets are off. Exactly. That the way we see the war on terror, probably most clearly, is through contradistinction in looking at who the war on terror never applies to, despite structurally similar behavior. Timothy McVeigh, a white revolutionary, someone who you know was a decorated army soldier, veteran of the first Gulf War, commits what until 9-11 is the worst terrorist act in American history on U.S. soil, uh, the killing of 168 people, including 19 children in in, uh, April of 1995. And it is remarkable to look in retrospect at how the broad infrastructure of white political violence in this country 
including, um, you mentioned the acronym CSA, that doesn't mean the Confederate States of America, that means a terrorist organization uh, called the Covenant Sword and the Arm of the Lord. So basically like some real American television. Which absolutely shit. sounds like a bad religion chorus, but... It, it, <laughs> It's and and Frank, you know, yes, and because this is Christian identity, you know, bad religion certainly applies to. Me. To give one, like I think, real clear example, I think probably uncontroversially, a ton of people in America who, if they had to like confront Christian identity, would immediately say, like, oh, this isn't Christianity at all. This is a justification for violence that uses uh, Christian texts in order to make a political point that's like deeply fucked up and ugly. That's probably not very controversial because so much of America is very familiar with Christianity and doesn't like, is very equipped to, to recognize that like, whatever it is Jesus said, it wasn't, you know, take a rocket launcher uh, and try and like blow up some buildings. And this is very filtered by both the political and journalistic establishments at, at the time and then all throughout. They won't see Al-Qaeda in the same kind of space relative to Islam. Instead, we get 20 years of messages, some sophisticated and subtle, supposedly, others very like bald-facedly racist and nativist that view Al-Qaeda as the kind of culmination of what Islam's project is. And I, right now, as I think is sort of our instinctive want to do, but is also historically accurate, are largely uh, you know, framing events that occur on a Republican watch and during a Republican administration. But in the book, you contribute significant amount of space to the reaction, to the reaction of, of liberal politicians. And in fact, at one point you go so far as to, in talking about American exceptionalism is manifested by the war in Iraq and things like that. I'm looking in my notes for the exact quote that Hillary Clinton, John Kerry, Joe Biden personify acqui personified acquiescence to the Iraq war. And uh, what I'm wondering is, do you think that is true to such a degree that it represents a similar level of, of Islamophobia or is it a slightly different brand? Islamophobia um, throughout the war on terror manifests itself in different ways. It can manifest itself in vigilante violence. Mm -hmm. It also manifests itself in state violence. It manifests itself in the surveillance and detention infrastructure that gets built up, the financial infrastructure that criminalizes Muslim organizations, particularly charitable organizations and financial transactions. And of course, in uh, lethal ways directly through war, through drone strikes and so forth. Um, but it also manifests in different ways, ways that are expressed by liberals. You remember, um, there's a famous example of Hillary Clinton referring to American Muslims as the front lines of the war on terror. Comment that most American Muslim political organizations, civil libertarian organizations as well, like, will just like recite as quickly as they'll, you know, recite Hillary Clinton's infamous super predator line because of how tied up that conception was in treating American Muslims as a population that threatens the rest of the country, as opposed to a population that is threatened by the mechanisms of the state in the name of national security. Um, there is that sort of like traditional liberal condescension matched with this, um, you know, similar um, 
political imperative after 9-11 for uh, the Democratic Party and liberals to prove that they are just as patriotic, in some cases, just as bloodthirsty, just as willing to wage the war on terror as any Republican, just in terms of a kind of more polite variant, uh, a whole lot less of, of, of the crude stuff um, that you see Trump and MAGA and the nativists and Bush before them putting forward. But nevertheless, as carceral, um, certainly as lethal, you know, when you think of Barack Obama's foreign policy, um, particularly in the wake of Trump, one of the things that's most conspicuous, considering how um, Obama's aides thought of the war on terror as kind of like this nettlesome thing they had to address that was sort of a deviation from everything else they did in the world. The war on terror is the only foreign policy legacy Barack Obama still has. The, the Cuba outreach is gone. The Iran deal is dead. What else is there? Interesting. It's funny. I learned something from you. I perceived the dr- drone strikes as being, as, as being something that was much that grew massively under Obama and that went out, went out of favor in his absence. Trump increased the amount of drone strikes, yeah? Without a doubt. Um, first two years of Trump in office is... I think something like 50 odd more drone strikes than Obama's first two years in office and Obama's first two years in office um, were the high point of um, Obama's drone war. Trump got a tremendous pass uh, by posturing as a critic of the war on terror while also promising to intensify um, its most lethal and its ugliest attributes. And the press like jumped for the shiny object rather than doing the hard work of exposing what, in fact, the record was. It took a while for organizations like Air Wars and, um, and others that track the drone wars as, as best as anyone can, because all of this is an official secret, to realize that the tallies were, were so um, tremendously stark, where Obama, the, the, um, the president, will forever be associated with drones as an instrument of warfare, doesn't launch as many drone strikes um, early on as, as Trump does. To me, a lot of what is examined in the book and what an evolution that is observed has a profound racial component, a clear and obvious racial component. That said, and this is a kind of a twisted question. Yeah, go ahead. Would you say that the 2008 election of Barack Obama and presenting publicly a black opponent to conservative America served or made it easier to link American non-whites with Muslims and with others and with a threatening other internationally? Without a doubt. You know, one of the the prisms through which I look at uh, Obama's years prosecuting the war on terror is I try and do it in a a kind of two-step way where first we look at Obama's interactions with the security state um, over the first uh, four or so years of his presidency. The pressures... Uh, that he's confronting, that he's facing the points of agreement and difference, the the acquiescence, um, and in some cases, the challenging um, of that uh, security apparatus. And then go in the next chapter to look at how the right perceives all of this. The story there is not one of Barack Obama forging more continuity than departure um, in the war on terror and kind of continuing the work that George W. Bush does far more uh, than he takes it apart. 
but instead on the right is viewed as an outright enemy of America who has usurped power and is collaborating with terrorists in order to weaken America. And, you know, one of the, one of the things, you know, I'm sure you have this in your own writing, but like, you know, now that the book exists as a product and I can't go back and mess with it. One of the things that I wish I had kind of put more starkly is that like the first Muslim that Americans are afraid of and like view as kind of a public menace isn't Osama bin Laden, it's Malcolm X. So Islam, way before the war on terror, Mm -hmm. has this racialized and radical component to it that it's viewed as a weapon of a black liberation struggle that mainstream America, white America, by which I mean, is just like deeply threatened by and afraid of. And I think even, you know, now after 9-11, you know, well, after 9-11, you also had like a lot of a lot of calls to to worry about how like the next place Al-Qaeda would strike would be like to recruit people in prisons because of black Muslim gangs in prisons. And like, spoiler alert, that never that just doesn't happen <laughs> throughout Obama's presidency. You know, what's the major like right wing conspiracy theory? around him, because I think this is instructive, it's birtherism, the idea that Barack Obama is a secret Kenyan Muslim. Barack Hussein Obama. Barack Hussein Obama is his his actual middle name. You know, they they use the middle name again and again uh, to make him seem threatening because there has been now such an apparatus um, and such an echo chamber since 9-11, before it, but especially since 9-11, um, with the stakes certainly raised since 9-11, of viewing Islam as terrorism. And now someone with a Muslim-sounding name is president, and he is Black. He is not, quote-unquote, one of us. He is not your neighbor. He is someone who threatens your neighbor. This is a, a major step in how we get to where we are now, where Barack Obama is not a political opponent of the right. He is conceived of as an enemy of America and his presidency a calamity. Fascinating thing about interviewing you is is, as opposed to other guests, I will be putting my next question together and you will go ahead and answer it as I'm putting it together. Because what I was going (laughs) to say, no, because what I was going to say is that on the one hand, you have this, what I saw is this great positive that I became briefly misty-eyed about and was able to romanticize, was that a black Barack Hussein Obama being elected to the highest office in the land represented this great cultural touchstone and this great mark of advancement for this country, right? Almost immediately through McConnell, and but long-term through Trump, through birtherism, through now, is it had an equal and opposite, if not greater, gateway impact on sort of public hate and the grouping together of all things non-white? you know, and non-right leaning as a threat to the nation. It seems to me that opposing Barack Obama made it easier to, in the subsequent 10 years, be more, be more overtly racist in the political mainstream. It has a wandering effect. It has a way of kind of taking a lot of what had been sort of the familiar and polite euphemisms about American politics and who it's for and who it's not for and making it very explicit. And here as well is where the danger of the war on terror um, can can kind of become even more conspicuous because it's not just that this foreign, allegedly foreign threat 
has has now become commander in chief of the United States military and so forth. It's that the mechanisms of this open-ended war that occurs both at home and abroad are now, if they can win power, going to be in the hands of the people who consider Barack Obama to be, by virtue of being a black president, a threat to some you know, mythical conception of America. I shouldn't say mythical. Certainly for, for, for the people around Trump, for the MAGA people, he is a threat to their conception of what America is full stop. Barack Obama is basically like essentially a glitch in the American matrix to them that somehow because of like all this accumulated freight of liberal decadence and marauding foreign cultures, this calamity has happened where someone who America is supposed to suppress has now become the president of the United States. And so Obama, who sort of believes that the, the the greater part of valor is in not confronting this directly. And this is, of course, an extremely high stakes thing. Um, so this isn't um, the area on which I am like most critical of, of, of Obama. But nevertheless, I think you have to view this in hindsight um, as quite a significant mistake to not confront this strain of American history that is galvanized into American politics, like really in accelerated fashion during Obama's presidency as what it is because of its potential to, we're you know, now at the beginning of 2022, watching for, you know, in Florida, blanking on the name of the governor. DeSantis? DeSantis, yeah. They, like he's talking about like passing a law that basically protects white feelings from an accurate depiction of American history. Can't say the word gay in the classroom. That's also, uh, that's also hitting the books somewhere. You know, I mean, you're, you're, you know, you were around for punk in the 1980s. It must mm-hmm. seem, you know, like deja vu all over again for you. Ladies and gentlemen, you just heard Spencer call me old. It was really gracefully and artfully done. Um, but anyway, <laughs> you're not wrong. No, the, the, there are a lot of things that, well, I, I was a particularly perceptive youth. And I remember my mother and my grandmother arguing about Goldwater in the, you know, years down the road from Goldwater, but as Reagan was on the horizon and it was a level of sort of venom and division in the country that I thought was remanded to those years when I was just starting to understand things in my childhood, it was child's play at the time with the possible exception of a Southern governor that got shot. I'm blanking on him, but um, in any case, let's go post Obama. Yeah. Let's talk about the Trump era. To me, I, I, I like throwing ideas that I get from reading your work and from reading other people's work at somebody who's better informed on the topic and seeing whether they carry any water. The Patriot Act, things that happened with the NSA immediately following 2001, a lot of the tent poles of the Republic, a lot of certain protections against individual freedoms and liberties were sort of torn down in the name of, of self-protection, right? That, to me, set precedent for a lot of the ways in which Trump just said the norms of the office, the expected norms, the perceived role by the president of his own justice department, all of that didn't really matter. It seemed like that started in baby steps clear back in 2001. I I try and make it. I mean, this is really the central point of the book that the Hmm. war on terror and the transformations after 9-11 really hollow out uh, the country into a very brittle institutional state. Um, that's just waiting for a figure like Trump, particularly after empowering all of these reactionary political forces uh, guided by 
a kind of righteous sense of revenge and retribution in the name of protecting um, the country, the, the, the same sort of forces um, that have sort of acted so often throughout American history, um, all of the nativism, all of the racism, all of the violence, and set them on the march. The Patriot Act um, and uh, the NSA warrantless surveillance constellation of programs um, is, is really just a perfect uh, case in point to the point where institutional lawlessness, what uh, the philosopher, uh, the Italian philosopher um, Giorgio Agamben calls the state of exception, really sets into the architecture um, of the American justice system and the American military to the point where there are all of these institutional carve outs for national security. I mean, when we, when we think about, you know, one of the most um, important quotes ever um, for the war on terror is uh, a quote from a guy named Kofor Black, who on uh, 9-11 is uh, the head of the CIA's counterterrorism center. And in one of the few times uh, this guy whose job is officially secret testifies publicly, makes any kind of public statement at that point, is during a congressional inquiry um, in 2002 into the 9-11 attacks. And the way he describes very theatrical performance to Congress and like banks of cameras and all that. But he makes this important statement, which says when asked about the CIA's post 9-11 operations against Al-Qaeda, he says, I would just put it this way. Um, there's a before 9-11 and an after 9-11. After 9-11, the gloves come off. And that gets repeated a lot. And what often, it, you know, is is kind of used casually to kind of say is that like, you know, America is getting tough. America is getting back onto, you know, its, its rightful position in history and in geopolitics and so forth. But what are the gloves? The gloves are the law. That is what Kofor Black, as the CIA um, counterterrorism director, is saying, because it's the law that comes off. It's the law that says torture is illegal. It's the law that says um, when detaining someone, you have to charge them with, a, with an offense or release them. The law, in fact, it's the Constitution that says to surveil someone, you must have a specific articulable you know, reason for believing this person in particular um, has committed a crime, that you go before a judge and convince a judge or a grand jury that you have this information. You don't just take it upon yourself to collect literally everyone's phone records and then sift through them to decide what connections to dangerous people exist. You don't have the militarization. You have, you know, a recognition that like someone who crosses a border outside an official checkpoint has committed a, and this is just the case, a misdemeanor and a civil offense, not a criminal offense. Everyone who said, and you've heard this a million times, particularly post 9-11, um, but definitely in the last decade, especially that like we have to enforce the law at the border. The law at the border is not criminal law, but all of this comes out in the wash of 9-11 under justification of righteous vengeance dressed up as national security. Those are the gloves that come off. Similarly, obviously, you know, the war on terror is not the first time that politicians and journalists lie about a war, and it won't be the last. But nevertheless, there is this extreme example of very big lies being, being concocted in um, 
in in the in the federal government and amplified in newsrooms, oftentimes straight up manufactured narratives um, like how Saddam Hussein was supposedly going to give weapons of mass destruction to Al Qaeda, mm -hmm. but also um, lesser, but nevertheless with accumulated freight, big lies that come out of the CIA. Torture isn't torture, it's enhanced interrogation. From the NSA, um, it's not surveillance on everyone's phone and internet data, it's the terrorist surveillance program. We're not assassinating people anonymously um, based on patterns of life using drones. We're conducting a targeted killing program, things like that. Mm -hmm. And all of that together, particularly given how risably euphemistic it is, and also how long it lasts without delivering either peace or victory, is basically just tempting fate for a figure like Trump to come along and say that only he can fix it, that only through the proper application of more forthright violence without attempting to um, provide even like the modicum of the, the rule of law, you know, like allowing, you know, Guantanamo Bay detainees to have access to courts and so forth. Once all of these um, hysterical rationales, uh, brittle national institutions um, that have basically decided the law is a luxury um, in times of war and official and institutional lies all adding up essentially for, you know, futility and, and bloodshed, but not victory, open invitation for a figure like Trump to not only come to power, but come to power through saying all of the people who have gotten you into this mess and not known how to ultimately uh, bring it to a successful conclusion. You don't have to listen to them about anything. And there's a part of, I think, anyone who listens to that and be like, yeah, kind of fuck right, you know? Like before recognizing that like what Trump is doing is marshalling everything that has made this so disgusting and amplifying that. Okay. I want to read you a quote of yours from the very end pages of the book. And why would you be so then, cruel? Well, and then I'll tell you why. So <laughs> there, is, there is a thinking to, to the torture. Neither conservatives nor liberals wanted to face what nationalists and leftists knew. The war on terror could sustain itself because of how deeply American it was. Its iconography, the gun wrapped in the flag with the cross implied in the background, was no accident. That strikes me as pessimistic. That strikes me as saying that the current state, where so many of our own protections against themselves have been rolled back in the last 20 years, the fervor that could lead to something like January 6th. You don't strike me as someone who thinks they're likely to be put in check or who they're like, or that the toothpaste is likely to go back in the tube. I, I guess I would just say like this. I, I tend to not like, like, you know, are you optimistic or are you pessimistic um, discussions? Because like, that's a sense about like my mood, like that can change okay. based yeah, on that's uh, fair. what the way I would put it kind of differently is that the way to stop this disaster is by a thorough and forthright reckoning with not only its operations, but its roots and the sources of its power. And the only way we can accomplish that is by honestly reckoning with how little it took for like 9-11 to allow politicians, journalists, you know, CIA officials, military officials, you know, on down the line uh, to turn America in this direction. It was 
behavior, the war on terror I'm talking about, that a whole lot of American history kind of seeds the bed for. You know, none of this stuff comes out of nowhere. The war on terror doesn't innovate anything. It marshals things. It licenses things. It allows for, you know, a triumphant return to power of all these ugly currents of American history. And so I would say that only through reckoning with that can we, you know, force this era to end. The, and the, if I can say just one more thing on the, on the pessimism point, however pessimistic we might be at any particular point, and like I wouldn't begrudge anyone that, nevertheless, when you look at how dangerous the war on terror is, both at home and especially abroad, where it's more lethal, I think we have to view the war on terror not as something to be optimistic or pessimistic about, but as something we have an obligation to act an end, to act upon an end. When we think of these things in terms of our, you know, I'll speak for myself, in terms of my individual feeling, that can get in the way of me recognizing what my obligations are and where my solidarity belongs and how that has to guide my actions. So that's why I sort of resist that framework. Uh, thank you for that. So there are certain people, you look at their life story, you look at what they've done, you look at, at where their path has taken them and their next chapter might be predictable. I mean, Spencer, ABC, no real punk rock, or maybe I don't picture him reporting from Iraq, which you've done, yes. Mm -hmm. Afghanistan, yes. Mm -hmm. Guantanamo Bay, yes. Mm -hmm. Well, you're going to forgive me if I say that the next obvious step is not DC Comics, in my opinion, <laughs> but that's going to happen, isn't it, sir? Yeah, um, and thanks for bringing that up. So uh, I'm going to be writing um, along with my friend Evan Narciss, who's an excellent comic book writer, uh, Suicide Squad miniseries uh, for DC Comics. I'm a lifelong comic reader and comic nerd, and this is really a dream come true for me. Um, and I don't want to kind of do comic book stories for the sake of having like people in tights punch each other. I want to use them as opportunities for storytelling and for expressing things through fiction that can be kind of hard to express through journalism. And this is a comic book that if you, if you, you know, if you listen to me on this podcast, if you read my book, if you read some of, you know, my other work journalistically, it's going to seem like it makes a lot of sense that it, you know, is, is kind of dealing with a lot of the same themes just, you know, with people in tights, like shooting lasers at each other. What little I do know about it makes perfect sense to me. And that is that is not the Amanda Waller character who is essentially kind of a creepy government, government operative, someone who figures centrally in it. A lot of um, my time over the last 20 years has been spent reporting on the intelligence agencies. And here we have Amanda Waller, uh, the chief spy of the DC Comics universe, um, who's played by Viola Davis in the movies. This is a character I, I, I want to use to say a lot of things about um, both the American intelligence apparatus and also um, American power in general. I think you'll see a whole lot of continuities with the way like my journalistic work unfolds. I can't really say a whole lot. That's understandable. Spencer, this uh, was a fantastic conversation. As always, it was exactly what I hoped it would be. We battled, we battled the technical powers that be at the end, but I think we'll, we will get past <laughs> that. I look forward to talking to you again later in the year if that's going to be all right with you. I would love to do that. I think it's crazy that I'm on this podcast at all. It's amazing to see, like, I think the last episode that came out before this one um, that I saw from you was with Walter from Quicksand and Gorilla Biscuits. So I think it's, it's wild that 
I'm on a podcast that also features, you know, people like him. So I just really want to thank you for that. Uh, you and I both know what's behind the curtain with musicians and they should be honored to be on with you. I'm going to cut it there, sir. Everybody, that is episode 41 with Spencer Ackerman. Thank you so much, sir. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at soundtalentmedia.com and I'll see you there.